in a sense right uh, so the river is as a highway developed under the organizing acumen of the british the old eastern ways did not give importance to printed maps there are no indian maps of india from before the colonial period the oldest maps are foreign ones the europeans had their own new ways of organizing things people space and time they classified the lands with neat maps and the people like the rest of the animal kingdom with censuses mechanical clocks and watches came and clock time with its niche temporal divisions and the notion of punctuality with it i mean this is such a huge shift yeah. you know yeah and i don't know whether it's good or bad <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's been both good and bad it's just mm-hmm. it's a it's just been a whole other world which was invented what we are talking yes. about is basically yes. the ordering of space and time and there's nothing mm. more fundamental than the ordering of space and time so yes. basically the the whole modern world which we all inhabit whether we like it or not you mm. know there's there's no other the only people who are not living in the modern world now are the uncontacted tribes of the amazon yeah. and the uncontacted tribe or two that's left in the nicobar uh, chain yes. everybody else is a part of this modern world because basically mm. it's ordered in a certain with a certain sense of space and time and mm. and those are inventions we've yes. become used to thinking that that they were always there but of course they were not always there you know the mm. the mechanical clock is an invention yes and it's not that old the mechanical clock i mean the first uh, the oldest clock towers that you will find in the world are mm. are uh, in bern and in prague mm. and, and okay. those those are both uh, uh, about a thousand less than a thousand years old hmm. so again on the historical scale of human history itself it's not so long ago that the notion of time started to change and yes. and and the actual i mean at that time it used to be one clock tower somewhere in europe you know by the time hmm. it came here and everybody started getting used to clock time it was after the british came it was it was after the actual you know the period of of british colonial rule started because until then we didn't really have that sense of clock time in a, yeah. in, a in a big way so similarly with space ordering of space maps we think of the you know map as being something which is god given as if it's always been there of course it's <laughs> not always been there and uh, mm-hmm. the the projection itself the technique of drawing a map in a certain way the way we draw it now is the mercator projection which was invented in the 16th century so it's really yes. quite recent and mm. and the first mapping that happened of uh, of this part of the world uh, well i mean there were some maps in the early colonial period but the basic the the solid mapping happened in the british period and it happened with people like james rennell who mm. who was one of the people who traveled up the brahmaputra uh, in the early 18th century mm. and uh, uh, he so he drew he drew one of the uh, 
you know first maps of that part of the of the world and mm. he was he was basically uh, engaged by the east india company to draw these maps so yes. so so our notions of space and and time changed along with the advent of uh, imperialism and capitalism both both things which we now don't like but <laughs> but you know they they changed the way we see the world yes and 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 uh, renel himself thought he was doing it all in the uh, interest of science yeah. he doesn't seem to have thought about commerce at all yeah, <laughs> yeah. like you've pointed yeah. out yeah. but I, i also found this you know the way you juxtapose at barker and gupta their yeah. their yeah. descriptions of the same river i found that really funny yeah. and also yeah. i mean yeah. you know yeah. these two guys looking yeah. at the same thing but in yeah. such different yeah. ways yeah, yeah. yeah so different people had different ways of looking at it so basically mm-hmm. obviously i mean that's the thing i mean so so i guess you know we see things as uh, as we are and not as they are, they are you know <laughs> that's how it is yeah, yeah. and and just the drawing of maps and the idea of maps is what has led to a lot of the conflict in the northeast and across the world as well right nationalism and you know this idea of neat and you've mentioned it neat uh, divisions and categories and this cleanliness obsession with it ethnically also yeah because basically in the in the colonial period what they were what was happening globally all around the world was that at that time thinking the the global thinking or the or the leading global thinking was about ordering nature and mm. uh, so you had the periodic table you yes. had the you know animal kingdom being classified in all sorts of charts and mm. uh, you had uh, the world being divided into nations mm. and uh, so it was basically a large work of mapping surveying and organizing the whole natural world and mm. uh, of course that has led to problems because you can't impose so much neatness on an untidy yeah. reality mm. and especially in our part of the world our realities mm. are very untidy we have we have these different grades of culture people water all flowing into one another which is not something that you will find in you know a small island in western europe of of yeah. the coast of western europe so yeah. so when that way of seeing gets imposed on the whole world it becomes problematic because the whole world is not like that yeah and uh, so so what we've what we've sort of tried to do is to impose those ideas and ironically it's the people who think they are nationalists or nativists who are staunchest in imposing those ideas those yes. are actually their western ideas yes of course i mean the whole idea of, uh, like the rss the origins are completely western they're not like <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i you know i found this uh, this thing this interaction with the uh, uh, i think his name is vijay teram Yeah, you yeah, know that, that yeah. chapter again, the yeah. dam, dams chapter, which I found a very interesting chapter. You know, yeah. uh, and it's full of I don't know doom, I guess, but also yeah. efforts to stop the doom, the impending doom, which I don't know how successful it will be. But that's another thing. But yeah, this this bit I found very interesting, where he says, "Was the uh, where you say was the nature worship of Doni Polo akin to Hinduism?" Teram seemed to have a different view on the matter than Oyar Gao. 
A Shankaracharya had once come here. He said to me, you are a Hindu and I am a Hindu. I said, no, I eat everything. I eat beef. He had also been invited by the largest and most powerful Hindu nationalist organization in India. The Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which was active in these parts for a talk. I said, I worship the sun, but my Doni is not your Surya Devta. You cannot be engulfing me. He seemed to view the Hindu nationalist attempts at finding similarities as an exercise in assimilation by which the distinctive identity of his faith would be lost. And he clearly did not like the idea of assimilation on those terms. So talk about this, you know, and because the RSS is working a lot, sometimes in some of these areas, they seem to be the only people, you know, like running educational establishments in, in these remote areas. So, you know, talk about that and... Uh, so basically, we were going up uh, towards the China border, and uh, in Inkyong, we met this man. He is a lawyer uh, hmm. over there in the Upper Siang Valley, and hmm. uh, obviously, he uh, we talked to him about dams and about other things. There's a lot of resentment there about uh, the plans to build dams. They don't like it. Most people there hmm. don't like it. Very, they're very hmm. strongly opposed to it. Hmm. Uh, but this also cropped up in the course, course of conversation, this point about uh, religion and about religious identity. And uh, there has been this sense of uh, proselytization by different faiths in Northeast yes. India, especially in Arunachal. Mm. And uh, it has been uh, obviously contentious because uh, right from the beginning, uh, when Arunachal Pradesh began to see the development of uh, an administration. And this mm -hmm. happened after India's independence. It happened uh, uh, in the from the 1950s onward uh, mm -hmm. in a small way uh, mm -hmm. and gradually built up over time. The administration was gradually built up over time. Even as late as the 70s, uh, it was not there in all places. So, okay. so this was a place where Verrier Elvin, who was the advisor yes. to Nehru for, for mm. Northeast India, he he had advised against allowing any uh, any kind of proselytization, really. Mm. Uh, and uh, so basically, it didn't uh, happen in a big way. But, okay. uh, but in I think in more recent times, there has been a steady influx and uh, it's basically not from not people from outside it's basically locals who have been converted into uh, one of or the other of the so-called world faiths who okay. are then sort of uh, trying to uh, bring more people into the fold of whatever okay, so this is like what both hindus and christians yes okay. <laughs> both hindus and christians hmm. and uh, there is also this local faith called Doni Polo, which is worship of the sun and the moon, Doni and Polo. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so there is, I think, uh, some sense that uh, uh, this that that there is an attempt to engulf this within the larger Hindu fold, and that is what mm -hmm. Deram was uh, not happy with because mm -hmm. he uh, is among those who would like to retain a separate identity. Whereas, of mm -hmm. course, as we know, there is this notion uh, in certain quarters that uh, uh, any faith which is born in this subcontinent is a part of the greater Hindu faith. Yes. And, uh, so, so that's where <laughs> their 
that's where that particular tension lies hmm. so you've like highlighted the dams and uh, this that huge multi uh, multi purpose dam and you know i don't know if it's going to be in this earthquake prone zone why yeah. would it be passed yes you mentioned because it's worth a lot of money i mean it's going to make a lot of money yeah. but what about local resistance you've spoken about that as well so let's yeah. talk about that and the yeah. danger of uh, these huge dams well the biggest danger of the huge dams is that they're going to kill the river and mm. uh, that would be a disaster in itself yes uh basically the the thing is that i don't think i have met anybody who uh, who supports big dams there are people mm-hmm. who support maybe you know small dams uh, because they need electricity or something mm-hmm. like that but mm-hmm. i i don't think uh, i've met in the course of following the river anyone who was a big champion of big dams and mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me that uh, you know that bil- building big dams there would first of all kill the river and secondly uh, it it would uh, definitely be prone to you know all sorts of things i mean it is indeed it is the most earthquake prone part of india and uh, it's a unstable geography and so one can imagine that uh, you know one if one dam bursts that's a problem even when dams don't burst there are mm. a lot of cases where floods happen because of dams so the logic that dams are somehow going to prevent floods is actually upside down because mm-hmm. because because basically when when there's really strong uh, rainfall a real mm-hmm. surge surge of water then at that time dams have to open their gates and allow the water to flow out yes and and so what happens then is that instead of water levels rising gradually water levels rise suddenly yes right so that is that is dangerous in itself if water levels rise gradually then people can see that it is rising they can move away animals can move away if it suddenly happens that you know some dam opens its gates and a rush of water comes it's a flash flood and that is yes. when people die yeah so so and it happens all the time it's not like it doesn't happen and every time it happens there you know there's always some inquiry and then nothing comes of it they say you know some official somewhere neglected to inform people further downstream or maybe they did and the people didn't hear about it but mm. basically it's not like dams are are great for you know people living down river of dams mm. and this is i'm not even talking about other things like the dam stopping the flow of uh, you know alluvial soil which enriches the the soil for farming and things like that yeah hmm so uh, so at one level you know reading about this kind of made me uh, feel sad of course especially the dam dams chapter because i don't know it seems like we are heading towards environmental disaster and we don't i don't know seem to care or mm. and that's the way of the world in general right we are hurling towards mm. but that could also be maybe because i'm i don't know i'm a, a doomsday sort of <laughs> believer but when you were traveling down the river mm. were you like did you feel optimistic or what what was the state of mind you know at various points of course your journey was broken but at the end when you finished writing the book mm. you know well i mean i love the river 
it's as mm. simple as that and i i would hate it for anything to happen to the river mm. my my view is that the river has been there for i don't know how long but mm. they say it's an antecedent river in the sense that it's older than the himalayas the mountains which came after so yes. basically it's really ancient it's really very very old and it's been there in some form or the other for a really long time mm. uh, and by really long time i'm talking of millions of years yes and uh, and uh, so i i mean it changes form it changes shape it changes name it changes but it's it still continues it's still there mm. and this building of dams is uh, it's going to kill the river it's going to kill kill the natural environment it's going mm. to kill the animals and plants that depend on it mm. you know so it's going to be a total disaster as far as i can see because it's the it's the river which has it's the river which has shaped the river valley and it's shaped life around it so yes so it would be a total disaster as far as i can see and i don't even think it would last very long you know mm. puny human beings they think that they will control nature but we are already living through a coronavirus crisis of the worst kind how many of us will be alive one year from now we don't know these fellows <laughs> nobody nobody saw it coming you know and these fellows are still running after contracts and trying to think ki isme thoda cut milega they uh-huh. you know they they want to kill the river because they want to you know they they make excuses about china building dams that's not it's nothing is happening most of the water in the brahmaputra is from this side of the himalayas even mm-hmm. if china builds dams nothing is going to happen to the river but if india builds dams then that's destructive mm-hmm. and and uh, so basically i don't think even if they did imagine that they are able to build all the 150 odd dams that that they want to build this is india that you know that mm-hmm. that we want to build i don't yeah. think uh, you know it it would not help for very long because at the end of the day you'll still have uh, you know nature doing its thing and when nature yeah. does its thing then one fine day you'll wake up and find out that all your dams have gone to naught you know that's it mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so man i just loved your book um the uh, and for the listeners go out and get samrat choudhury's the braided river a journey along the brahmaputra it is a great read and um, you know it makes you think about the river it makes you think about politics it makes you think about the diversity of india and it makes you think about like i said you know colonialism and its impact and how we've also kind of like uh, made some really alien and uh, maybe not very good ideas our own we like clutch them to our heart and how it perhaps is leading us to disaster right so so thank you so much samrat for uh, talking to me thanks manjula been a pleasure bye bye When did Chennai win its first cup? In 2010. Who won the orange cap last year? KL Rahul with 670 runs. If you too are a cricket know it all, then play the Crick Bazi contest. Watch Crick Bazi on HD Smartcast YouTube channel and win exciting gifts on the daily Crick Bazi ka Bazigar contest. Crick Bazi on HD Smartcast YouTube channel. Click on the bell icon to never miss a chance to win. Subscribe to HD Smartcast for more podcasts. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. 
स्मार्ट कास्ट